0: Welcome to Livingstone Calvary Chapel. This morning we're going to be in chapter 18 of the Gospel of Luke. We've taken a couple of weeks to get to this place. We're going to finish it this, this morning. We're going to be in verse 31 and on through verse 43. We ended our study last week. We read the words of Peter in verse 28, who had said this, quote, he said, see, we speaking to Jesus, we, speaking of himself and the other disciples, and maybe just the 12, because we'll see how Jesus addresses the 12 in response to this a little later on. But he said, see, we have left all and followed you. And in the context of what we were reading and studying about last week, we realized that this statement that Peter made was a response to what Jesus had just said to this rich, young ruler of a synagogue about how he had to leave all behind and come and follow after Jesus. Remember, this guy was all, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And, and, and he said that he had kept all the commands of God from his youth and, and these kinds of things. And Jesus said, you've done well, and there's one more thing that you must do. And Jesus said, go sell all you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. And in the account, we read that he went away sad because of this thing that he was called to do. Well, Peter, hearing that, then makes this statement to Jesus. We, see, we've left all to follow you. In light of this, we understand that Peter was indirectly asking Jesus a question by making a distinction between himself and the rich young ruler who would not follow after Christ and went away sad. And in doing so, he was actually saying, Peter was actually saying, well, we're not like this guy. We're not like this rich young ruler who would not give up earthly possessions or mother or father or brother, as Jesus went on to explain the cost of discipleship, he, that he would not give these things up to come and follow you, but we have. So, so really what Peter was saying in the statement was, what's, what's in it for us? What's in it for us? In other words, Peter was asking Jesus to affirm what his and the other disciples' rewards would be for leaving all behind to come and follow after him. And in light of this, we ended last week's study by talking about how heaven is more than a destination for those of us who believe in Jesus. Is it a destination? Absolutely. Is it the best destination? Yes, we all want to go there. But heaven, we also see because of when we, when we talk about discipleship and the cost of discipleship and the question that Peter or the, the statement that, that Peter made here, we see also that, that heaven is a reward, it's a motivation. It's a reward that's been earned for us. We don't earn it, but we see what Christ has laid up for us, and it's a motivation. In that, through our faith in Jesus, we've received, have we not, a promise of an eternal inheritance? We have. And if we choose to follow after Jesus, pressing towards that goal, we will obtain the prize that he has already won for us. And so it's a motivation to keep going after Christ, to keep following after Christ, even when things get difficult, even when things get hard, even when it conflicts with our own wants, our wills, our desires, our hopes and plans for our own lives. And this is really what the Apostle Paul wrote about in Philippians chapter 3, and I read this last week as well, and I want to read it again. But in verses 12 through 14 in Philippians 3, the Apostle Paul said this, he said, not that I've already attained this or I'm already perfected. And of course, beforehand, Paul was talking about the eternal reward. More specifically, he was specifically talking about how we are going to be perfected, that this, the corruption of sin and the sin nature is going to be gone. And I'm like, amen to that, right? I have to worry about this, this propensity and this temptation that we have faced towards sin. But he said, he said, not that I've already gotten there, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I... I press on to make it my own. In other words, he says, I'm looking forward to this. Not just a destination, but he said, this is a motivation for me. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He said, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. He says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lie, lies ahead, I press on towards the goal. Why? For the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, even though Peter's comment, and we might even call it a question, because this really was, it's a, it's a question concealed in a statement, but because he was looking for an answer. And, 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 and even, though, even though Peter's comment slash question of what then will there be for us had in it what we might and could consider as like a commercial or a prophet-style view of discipleship. In other words, okay, uh, I'll give this up, but what am I going to get in return? And, and that really, guys, that can't be our motive, our only motivation for discipleship. And we'll look at that here in the text this morning. But, but, but in light of that, we see that Jesus did answer Peter. He didn't say to Peter, get behind me, Satan, at this point. He said that to him at another time. <laughs> but we might think, we might think if you go, okay, Jesus, I'm following after you, but what's in it for me? Why, why, what am I going to get out of it? We might think that he would be like, you selfish pig, get behind me. You know? And, and, and he doesn't do that to Peter because Christ wants us to understand that following after him and what he's laid up for us is worth it. Guys, And that's an encouraging thing because sometimes, man, what we're called to give up can seem like a lot. And how much does he call us to give? Everything. Right? Everything. And I don't know about you, but when I take money out of my wallet, because Dave Ramsey says to spend cash, by the way, because there's like a pain attached to that. When I'm taking out money, cash, I'm like, I, I consider, do I want to spend this to get that? And so Christ is rationalizing and reasoning with us as as Peter does this, and Jesus answers Peter in the affirmative in verse 29 and 30. Look, and what does he do? He says he promised to give, Jesus promises to give many times, not just addition. I'm not very good at math, like when it gets to algebra algebra equations and stuff like that, Um, but... I can add and subtract and divide and multiply, and I know that multiplication is better than just adding and subtracting. He's not. I'm not going to add to you. He says, many times. He says, many times. He promises to give many times more blessings in this life, it says, as well as rewards in the life to come in comparison to what we would be giving up or ever give up by the decision that we make to follow after him. In other words, Jesus assured his disciples that the rewards in this life and in the life to come would far outweigh what it would ever cost them to follow after him. In other words, it's like what God says: listen, I'm never gonna be your debtor. Amen. And he says that in the context of even given a tithe or an offering. Never gonna be your debtor. And that's true in regards to, to, to God as the creator. He's the creator. In other words, Jesus assured his disciples the rewards in this life and the rewards in life to come would far outweigh what it would cost to follow after him. Again, I say that because, but as we, as we read on in through the remaining verses of this chapter this morning, we see that Jesus went on to balance. And there is a balance to that. You know, there was this, there was this um, early on in the early church, <laughs> there was this uh, guy who was going around watching the apostles cast out demons. And do the working of the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and he came to him because he wanted to have some of that power too for his own personal profit. And he's, he's going, can I buy the Holy Spirit? Go read that account. See what happened to this guy. <laughs> and so our only motivation can't be just what's in it for me. That can't be the primary motivation. And what we see here is there's a greater motivation when it comes to discipleship. And it's our love for God. Okay? not just not just what what we can get out of the deal, but it's, it's our primary motivation is our, is our is our love for him and his love for us and that's what we see balanced out with these additional words as Jesus gives another announcement and here's the connection he, he gives another announcement about His impending suffering and death that would take place when they reached Jerusalem. So notice he talks about the many times of blessings that are gonna come in this life and the life after as we count the cost of discipleship, give all to leave all behind to follow him. He goes, he also says, Remember who I am, where we're going, and what I'm going to do for you. And that's what we now read in verse 31. It says, And then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Okay, so it's not even the whole crowds. It's not even all of those believers, if you will, the, that who were following after him. It's the 12. And we see Jesus do this a lot. And we know that it's preparation for what's coming when Christ would leave them as he calls them to be the leaders. But I think it's also an, an issue of Jesus kept these guys close because they were the biggest knuckleheads and he had to keep their eye on them at all times. You know, I can't leave you guys alone. And so I think there's a little bit of that going on, and that's a comfort for me because I'm like that. But he says this to him. Listen, he says, Behold, and remember the context of, of everything. Holy Spirit has it deliberately here for a reason in relationship to what we've already read and already reviewed this morning. He says, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished, for he will be delivered to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. They will scourge him and kill him, and on the third day he will rise again. Now three times this message is conveyed in verse 34. But they did not understand these things. This saying, it says, was hid from them. And then lastly, and they did not know the things which were spoken. In three different ways we are told in verse 34 This one simple statement. They didn't get it. Okay? Now, it was no secret. These things that Jesus said, they were not, they weren't, it wasn't a secret in any way. Okay? It was, Jesus didn't take the 12 away to go, hey, I just want you only to know this. That wasn't the context for what we're reading here. Again, it's like, um, i got to make sure you guys understand. It's preparation. But it, it wasn't a secret that Jesus, not only was he on his way to Jerusalem, because we, we know that uh, the Pharisees were, were planning and plotting to kill him, so it wasn't like it was a covert mission to, to Jerusalem. We've been talking about how they've been planning to go there this whole time. It was openly known. It wasn't a secret that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, nor was it the first time that Jesus had spoken these things with this kind of clarity to them. As, uh, specifically in regards to his own death and resurrection. And, and in fact, we know from the other gospel accounts that give even greater detail about these things as Christ spoke it to them, that this was at least the third time that Jesus had specifically told his disciples about these things regarding these events. And each time Jesus had spoken about these things, he told them that that they would happen when they reached Jerusalem. And currently, and it had great significance probably more now than it had ever had before in the sense, or it should have had more significance to them than it ever had before because right as of now, currently, because of where they are at, they were not away from Jerusalem, not far away from Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, they were just, just in the Jordan Valley where the city of Jericho was at, and they were on the Jericho road that leads up to Jerusalem. And, and in light of this, we might be wondering, you, you, you start to get the whole picture. They know they're going to Jerusalem. They know that this is going to happen. And what does Peter ask? What about me? Peter, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be rested. Yeah, Lord, but what about us? We're going to follow after you. We're giving everything up. What about, what about us? And you might be thinking like I have when I was reading this, that, that how could Peter be thinking about some kind of personal game when Jesus is telling him I'm going to Jerusalem to be crucified? However, this is is, is so relevant. In verse 34, it points out to us that Jesus' disciples did not understand. They didn't understand. They didn't get it. They didn't understand these things that Jesus was telling them. And we know, real quick, how often can that be just like us? You know, where, where God wants to reveal something very significant, very important to us and and we don't get it. We're like, okay, I, I, that's nice, but what about this going on in my life? What about me? And in doing so, we miss out on such important things that God has for us. And, and we're going to talk about that, but it says, it says that they did not perceive. And we know that when the Hebrew people in general at this time, and including his disciples, ones who we think may not fall prey to this kind of thinking. We know that that at this time, the Hebrew people and Jesus' disciples, that when they considered the Messiah, the Son of Man, who Christ is referencing in regards to Old Testament prophecy, a title given to the Messiah, to, to the Deliverer, that when they considered all that he would be and all that he would do, they did not in the slightest way perceive that he would be sent to suffer and to die as a payment for their sins, even though There are many passages of Scripture, like Isaiah chapter 53, that clearly account for this, indicate in detail these things that Jesus is referring to. Yet, we see that Jesus, even though they they didn't consider it, they couldn't perceive it, even though the prophets had foretold of it, we see that Jesus repeatedly emphasized these aspects concerning the Son of Man, that were commonly neglected and overlooked by the Jewish people of day, saying that the Messiah would suffer and die as a sin-bearing servant for his people, truly for all whosoever would believe. And according to verse 34, the reason for why so many Jews at this time, including Jesus' disciples, the reason for why they didn't understand this about the Messiah, even though God's word declared it, it was because this truth was being hid from their understanding. Now, I have heard people say that God was the one that had blinded them and, 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 and didn't allow them to see. But that's completely contextually wrong and doesn't make any sense in a common sense level anyway because Jesus, who is God in the flesh, who had come to save them, told them these things verbatim. This is what's going to happen. This is what the prophet said. This is what it's going to mean. And he told them repeatedly. So we can't come to the conclusion that God, on one hand, was telling them these things and the other hand, blinding them to it. So we must, be, we must come to some other kind of conclusion. And so on the contrary, their understanding was darkened because their hearts were dark. And is that not true in regards to the things that the Lord wants to speak to us? It's not because he's speaking them to us and then hiding them from us. Like now we got to go find out what God's will is or what God wants to reveal to us. The thing that, that, that keeps it hidden from us is our own darkened hearts. And for some reason, this darkness was wasn't was 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 or or for excuse me for some at this time, and, and it's true in our own lives, but for some at this time, this darkness that, that was shrouding them from seeing the truth was rooted in the issue, it was rooted in expectation. We know that historically to be true. And what do I mean is is, is that it was rooted in expectation in their own preconceived ideas of who. The Messiah would be and exactly what He would do for them. And this is what was keeping them from seeing the truth. And ultimately, most of the people who were following Jesus, even those who, who were like not like, we're following Him, He's the Messiah. We know ultimately that they would reject him shortly from, not, not too long from this very time. They're following him. Their Messiah is here. You know, Jesus is going to walk uh, ride in on a donkey on uh, Palm Sunday, and they're going to go, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, and, and declare him. But these people ultimately rejected Jesus. And even Judas, who was one of the 12 of the apostles, we know that he would do the same. Why? because of their preconceived ideas, because of their expectations, because they wouldn't receive or accept the truth because their hearts were darkened. And these people who who ultimately rejected Jesus had concluded in their minds that they needed a Messiah to be a mighty king who would deliver them from their Roman oppression. And in the same manner... Or on the other side of the coin, they did not believe that they were in need of a suffering servant who would deliver them from sin. They didn't see their greatest need. They saw the temporal thing in front of them. It blinded them. Their expectation and preconceived ideas about their own needs blinded them from their greatest need, which was to be saved from their sinful heart. And even though the apostles didn't fully understand what Jesus had spoken to them at this time, we see that Jesus took the time to faithfully declare these things to them in order to prepare them for what was coming and for the time when their expectations, because God does this for every one of us. He strips away our expectations. He strips away our preconceived ideas so we are confronted with the truth and with what God has for us, his will and not our own. And, And so Jesus was preparing these disciples for that time for when it would happen to them. He was giving them the truth. For a time ultimately for the people and, and for many on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus' death and resurrection, we, we see that there was the stripping away as the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and thousands and thousands and thousands of people came to know the Lord. But for a time when they would be challenged to put their faith in Jesus as the Messiah who had come to save them from their sin, to not look at Him as a failed king who couldn't deliver them from the hands of the Romans, but to see Him as a loving Savior who came to seek and save the lost. And the point is, guys, we all have had in the past, but I think even still today, we all have had and have continued to have ideas and expectations about who Jesus is and about what he can do for us that keeps the things of God hidden from us. Yet being a disciple of Jesus, listen, here's where it all kind of comes together, I think. Yet, being a disciple of Jesus who presses on towards the goal in order to obtain the prize that Jesus has won for us requires, as the Apostle Paul had said and wrote, it requires for us to forget those things which are behind our ideas, our expectations, our want, our will. To set those things behind, to set them in the past. Leave them behind, as Paul said. Forget about them. Why? So we can reach forward to those things which are ahead. And the reason why that's important is because those things that are ahead only come by and through faith. They're things that can't be seen. They are things that are hoped for. Meaning as we daily come to Jesus and to the Word of God, which is truth in faith, We must continually lay down our own ideas, our own wants, our own expectations in order to receive the fullness of what God has for us, to come and receive the fullness of what he has for us. Why? So that we, as Paul writes in praise for the Colossians, so that we may continue to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, this truth is then exampled for us in this account that Luke goes on to record in regards to faith and receiving what God has for us and the nature of our Savior. And it says in verse 35, it says, then it happened as he was coming near Jericho, speaking of Jesus, and of course all these crowds of people and the disciples, that a certain blind man sat by the road begging. That would be a very common sight, especially There near Jericho, a major city at a crossroads on a major road as a thoroughfare that went up out of the Jordan Valley into the city of Jerusalem. So there was there a blind man who sat at the road begging. And hearing a multitude passing by, he asked what it meant. What's going on? And so they told him, and these would be the crowds who were following Jesus, that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he, and so he cried out, saying, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And obviously this blind man had heard about this Jesus, and now he was calling out to him, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And then those who went before warned him that he should be quiet, but he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So, verse 40, I love this, Jesus stood still. He stopped. He stopped. And then he commanded that this man, commanded him to be brought to him. And when he had come near, he asked him, saying, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. And then Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately you received his sight. and, And he followed him, glorifying God and all the people when they saw it, gave praise, gave praise to God. Now, at the very beginning of this account, the thing that I want to point out is is that it's passages of Scripture like this one, which show us the merciful and compassionate nature of Jesus that makes it easy to fall in love with Jesus. Does it not? Not only does it make make it easy to fall in love with Jesus, a guy like this who would stop and heal a blind man that would take the time. Think about it for a minute. Jesus was on his way to do what he had been sent to do. The time had come. His hour was there. He was going to redeem the whole world through his life offered up on the cross where he would be betrayed by one of his own, arrested by, his, by the high priest and, and the guards, uh, turned over to the Gentiles, to the Romans, where he would be beaten, crowned with a crown of thorns, mocked, humiliated, put upon a cross to die nailed to a cross to die. And with the knowledge of all of that, with his feet on that last journey to that place, Jesus stops, not thinking of himself or what he's going to do. He stops and he thinks about the one blind man who cries out to him, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. What great compassion what great kindness our Savior is. He's so easy to fall in love with. And we understand his nature as it's revealed to us in this, not only that, that, that we see that it's easy to fall in love with him, but the motivation, we see the motivation to leave all behind and follow after him. It's not about what we can get out of it for ourselves, which is part of it because he has given us and promised us, but it's, 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 it's because of who he is. To be in relationship with our Savior, with God our Father, who loves us. To leave it all behind and follow Him. To be that bondservant that says, says, open up my ear like it says in Psalm 40, so that I may serve you all my days. Put your gold ring in my ear because I choose to follow after you because in your house is blessings forevermore. In your presence is blessing forevermore. There's no greater place. And when we read counts like this, guys, also we need to remember that we've been called, have we not, to be imitators of Christ who are just like this to those around us? Compassionate and merciful people. Christians, little Christ. Like Him. And as we remember... We got to remember, as we do this, as we're called to be imitators. We should remember that it was God's loving kindness that led us to repentance, and it's God's loving kindness, then, that is manifested through our lives that will lead others to repentance. And I place that in context of the response of these crowds of people who we we can't be like this crowd. We got to be like Jesus. And the fact of the matter is, all throughout Luke's gospel account, we've had we've read accounts of how Jesus has healed people. By cleansing the lepers. Remember that? Ten of them. By making the lame to walk. By making the deaf to hear. By making the blind to see. By raising those who were dead back to life. Jesus healed. But ultimately Jesus healed by preaching the good news of the coming of kingdom of God. And the salvation of grace. Of, of, of salvation of, of salvation by grace through faith. To all of these people. Even to those that he healed. Physically. In light of that, I want to put out that all these healings that have been accounted for, it's not by coincidence that the healing of this blind beggar is the last. It is. It's the last of the healing, of the miracles of healings that is recorded in the, in the, in the Gospel of Luke. And I think that's significant. And I think there are many significant things for us to see and understand as we go through it. And the first thing is this, is, is the persistence of this blind man. They're like, shut up. And he's like, I'm not shutting up. <laughs> you shut up. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's the persistence of this blind man. is significant because it's demonstrated in verse 39 where it tells us that, that he called out to Jesus all the more, even, even though all the people had warned him to be quiet. And it appears that this, this, this it appears that it was the persistence of This persistence of this man in the face of the adversity that caused Jesus to stand still. It wasn't that he cried out the first time. Jesus kept on going. It was when they said, hey, you, be quiet. And he said, no way. He cried out all the more. And it was that persistence that caused Jesus to stop, it says, to stand still. In verse forty to the cries of this man who was asking for mercy to be brought to him. And I point this out because in our lives, as we seek Jesus, there's going to be adversity. In our lives, as we seek Jesus, as we cry out for him, to know him, to be in fellowship with him, to have his mercy, there's going to be adversity, things in our way that battle against us, trying to prevent us from receiving all that God has for us. And I don't know about you, but but more often than not, the adversity, uh, the, the the adversary that is the greatest, the adversity that is the greatest, comes from the very person who stares back at me when I look in the mirror. I'm my own worst enemy when it comes to these things. Specifically, we know that Galatians chapter five tells us that our flesh, our flesh, wars against the spirit. And that our flesh, this old man and the Spirit of God which now lives inside of us that has given us this new nature, the nature of God, it says in Galatians 5, they're contrary to one another. There's this adversity that goes on, this battle that goes on, this war that goes on that, that, that is trying to prevent me, us, from receiving all that God has for us. And you know what the Bible says? He says, it says kill that old man. Leave him behind. Press forward. However, adversity comes in many different forms, and it also comes, it's going to come in ways that we don't expect. Okay? So, Christian life is one where we should expect the unexpected. And the fact of the matter is, I don't know about you, but this crowd of people who were following after Jesus and reacted the way they did, in my opinion, they, they reacted in an unexpected way to these cries for mercies. And as the followers of Jesus, these guys, as the followers of Jesus, we should have expected, we should expect for them to be the ones to bring this man to Jesus. Here's a blind beggar man sitting alongside the road. Maybe Jesus can do something for him rather than, hey, you, be quiet That's unexpected, yet they were the ones that told him to be quiet, and really what they did is they tried to prevent this life-changing encounter from taking place. And I have to, I have to do it. God calls us to us in this point, as we look at how this can apply to our lives, I think we need to ask ourselves, could this be us? You know, the ones that were following Jesus here, they're kind of like the church. We're the ones who are called to follow after Christ. The church. And look how the church is reacting here. But yet, we should ask ourselves, could this be us, the church today? Have we been those who have gone before others and been a hindrance or a discouragement to those who are trying to get to Jesus? I think that the answer to that question is probably yes. And I think it comes in many forms. Ways that we don't even consider. Maybe in our, on our complaining, just in everyday life. Complaining. How about for our lack of brotherly love for one another? How about for our lack of unity? How about for lack of forgiveness? It doesn't just have to be because we have like have this gross, open, outward sin for everyone to see. And they go, oh, you're a Christian? It's these other things that, that I mentioned that so often can be those things that stand in the way of people coming to Jesus. Now think about it also. It's an amazing thing everybody's walking by and they're all, hey, what's going on? The blind man's all, hey, what's going on? What's going on? And they're like, it's Jesus of Nazareth. He just walked by you. He's heading to Jerusalem. And so he starts crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And so these guys, they've even walked by the guy. And and it says those who have passed by him, they, they, they already passed by to tell him to be quiet. They went out of their way to make an effort to stand in front of the will of God here. But yet that can be us. Let it not be us. We have to be so careful to never do this. To ask the Lord to search our heart where we've been, where we've not been a roadblock, but where we've been, as we have even named our youth center, a bridge for people to receive God's mercy and grace. Again, I go back to you, I think it's because we, we accomplish that when we, when we be imitators of Christ. Those who are compassionate, those who are merciful, those who are loving to those who don't deserve love, those who are forgiving to those who don't deserve forgiveness. It's loving it's loving kindness that leads people to repentance. And so often the church has this, and, and lots of times is unfair. I get it. It's not justified, but the church has has this people perceived, people perceive the church to to not be like that, to not be welcoming, to not be loving. We're called, but here's the thing, guys, I want you to be very clear. We're called to be gracious, not tolerant. You know You can't receive grace, the grace of God, without truth. And what tolerance does is, is it ignores the truth. And the truth is, is we are all sinners in need of a savior. We all are. And we don't we don't go pointing out people's sin or condemning them for them. We just know that people sin and we're sinners. And we're all the same, and we're all in need of a Savior. I heard it said that, you know what, be careful that we don't be critical and judge people just because they don't sin the same way we do. <laughs> right? You know, James even talks about it, you know, he's this warning to the church to not be partial, don't show partiality. When a guy walks in, he's all fancy and he's got a lot of money. Ooh, you sit here, brother, friend. And then the guy who, who doesn't look like that, you know, maybe he's dirty and smells or whatever. And it doesn't have to be just outward appearances. It can be the inward things that are revealed too, where we go, you know, you're over here. There's a place for you. And truthfully, guys, we may not do that in the church setting. and may it never, ever happen here. And if we ever become a church like that, I'll be the first to leave, and you should leave too. But we can do that in, 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 the, in, the, in the crevices of our mind, can we not? Where we make these these judgments and we pass forth these condemnations upon people in a way that Christ never has. In a way that he never has. But I love it that this, this, this discouragement and these warnings to be quiet did not deter this blind beggar as he cried out all the more, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He's all you guys, you guys keep moving. Jesus is who I want. And man, we got to do that in regards to our own flesh. That's all trying to be a discouragement to us and preventing us from trying to get this life-changing encounter with Christ on a daily basis. Put to death these of the flesh, right? That old man that says these lies to us and condemns us and is like, nah, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And, and even if it's coming from external, let us have the same perseverance, the same persistence, and a lot of the discouragements or these warnings to be quiet from these adversities, whether they inside or out to deter us. And, and because, because what happens is when we cry out to Jesus, all the more when we're persistent in faith, what happens? Jesus stands still. stands still. And then what does he say? He says, what do you want? What can I do for you? Verse 41, what do you want me to do for you? I love that. Now, two things were told in Mark's gospel account about this event, which we don't read about, that Luke doesn't record for us here, but I want to I breathe these things out. We know the guy's name. According to Mark's gospel account, this guy's name is Bartimaeus. He's just not the blind beggar dude. Is Bartimaeus. And, 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 and when Jesus had commanded Bartimaeus to be brought to him, the other thing that I want to, to, to point out that Mark points out in his gospel is that Bartimaeus, it says, threw aside his garment and came to Jesus. And the fact that Bartimaeus threw aside his garment was a very significant sign. Okay, it was a very significant sign, a thing that he did. And this action, this action alongside his persistence to keep crying out in the midst of the adversity were demonstrations of his faith in which Jesus is referenced in verse 42, which Jesus referenced in verse 42. You see, for a beggar, especially a blind beggar, okay, this outer garment was very, very important. It was probably the closest thing that he had to a shelter. You guys have seen some of the homeless in our own community. There's one guy that goes around town. He, I've seen him. He has like every piece of clothing he owns on. And he kind of walks around like this. I don't, he's got to be so hot. You know, but he didn't have a closet. He doesn't have a, a dresser. He, I don't even think he has a backpack. He just wears it. And, and it would be like that for this blind beggar. Everything he owned, everything that was valuable, it was his protection from the heat of the sun. And David was with us in Israel. It's hot in that Jericho Valley going up there where the Valley of the Shadow of Death was. Remember we got out? It's hot in the summer. I mean, like you want to stay and you want to see all these cool sights, but you also want to stay. Can I just see it from the air-conditioned bus, please? That's how hot it is. And the sun's beating down. There's no shade. There's no trees. You can't get away from it. And so this this outer garment that he had, it would have shaded him from the sun, but more importantly, in that desert area, it gets very cold at night too. So it was shaded from the sun, and and it would have kept him warm at night. And he's a blind beggar, and there's a crowd of people, and Mark says, this guy stood up and he cast it away. Well, if you're blind, it's going to be kind of hard to find later on. And so in that was this awesome demonstration of faith that Mark accounts for us. In that, in that, in this, when he did this, um, to throw aside his garment, upon Jesus' command to come, on, c- c- to come, reveals that Bartimaeus, it reveals this. Listen, it believed that he was no longer going to need it. I'm not going to need this anymore. I'm leaving it behind. I'm going forward to take hold of what I know that Christ is going to give for me. And he sets it aside, and he called out to Jesus, the Son of David, who have mercy on him to restore his sight. And it's clear that Jesus was pleased with the faith that Bartimaeus demonstrated, and said in verse forty-two to him, "Receive your sight." I imagine he was smiling from ear to ear. I just that's how I picture Jesus doing it. Bartimaeus, receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. And listen, in Hebrews chapter eleven, verse six, it tells us that without faith, it's impossible to please God. And I think Jesus was pleased at Bartimaeus' faith. Now, one of the most interesting things about this account is how the, the faith of Bartimaeus, listen, the faith of Bartimaeus, it perfectly exemplifies biblical faith to us, which is defined in Hebrews chapter 11 as this. Faith is the confident assurance that what we hope for is going to happen. Faith is the confident assurance that what we hope for is going to happen. Did not part of have that confident faith? Jesus, the son of David, have mercy on me. Come, you bet. Throws it aside, forgets it all, and goes forward. Whatever he's got for me is better. It's better. And yet we hang on, guys. We hang on to these beggarly robes that we have thinking that it's better. That maybe it's not going to happen just in case. So faith is the confident assurance that what we hope for is going to happen. It is the evidence of things we cannot yet see. Why do you think this last healing miracle is of a blind man who could not what? See with his eyes. But he could hear. He heard that Jesus, the son of David, was walking by Jesus of Nazareth. He heard and the fact that Bartimaeus called out to Jesus even though he could not see him illustrates how faith allows us to see the invisible things we cannot yet see. Faith allows us to see the invisible things that we cannot yet see. Furthermore, when Bartimaeus was called to come, we see he left his beggarly garment aside before coming to Jesus, and it points out how faith allows us to believe the impossible. He was blind! There was no medical cure for his blindness. But what did he do? He cast away his robe and he went forward because he believed that Jesus could do the impossible. It allows us to see the invisible. It causes us, it allows us to believe the impossible. And lastly, the fact that Jesus in verse 42 told Bartimaeus that his faith had made him well. And then in verse 43, that he immediately received his sight and followed Jesus. It points out how faith causes us to receive what is incredible. I love that. To see the invisible, to believe the impossible, to receive the incredible. Why? How? Faith the confident assurance that what we hope for is going to happen. It is the evidence of things we cannot yet see. And why do we know that? It's because who we have put our faith in, who we have chosen to follow, is faithful. And no greater demonstration of this faithfulness and of his love has ever been shown to us but through the cross of Jesus Christ. See, Curly Bartimaeus demonstrated great faith when he cried out to Jesus and then to to come to Him and to be healed. But listen, the greatest demonstration of his faith is seen in verse 43 where, where we are told that when he received his sight, he did what? Did he go back and sit alongside the road and keep begging? It says that he followed after Jesus and glorified God. He said, he, that was like following after Jesus and go, this guy did this for me. I was blind, but now I can see. He glorified God. He proclaimed that Jesus is the son of God, the son of David. That's a messianic reference. He glorified God as he followed him. You see, listen, if Bartimaeus had just enough faith, and there's levels of faith, there certainly is. Go study the book of James. There's even a demonic faith. That's not what we see here. But but the the point is, if Bartimaeus had just enough faith to receive his sight, but not enough faith to follow after Jesus, he would have come to the end of his life as a man who could see, but then he would have had to face the judgment of God, and apart from Jesus, he would have been condemned to an eternal death. The Bible says, what good it is if we gain the whole world in this life, if we gain everything, but yet lose our soul." Bartimaeus had enough faith to leave it all behind, to follow after Christ, and he received eternal life. And Bartimaeus took the next step and believed Jesus to be the son, to, to be someone, to be, that Jesus was someone who was more than a man who could just give him his sight. And so many people think, and we gotta, we gotta be careful, Jesus is just not somebody, we, can't have, geez, we don't wanna have that type of faith that's like, oh yeah, Jesus can just give me what I want. Right? It must go to the place where he is the Son of God who died for me and where we praise him and where we glorify him, telling others of what he's done for us. He believed Jesus to not just be a man who could give him his sight, he believed Jesus to be the Son of David, the Messiah son of man and this is evident not only by the words that he had spoke when he had called out to jesus previously but more important by the fact that he followed him and in closing i want to point out that this last healing miracle of jesus that luke records gives us a really awesome picture of salvation the salvation that god has made available to all of us who will believe in jesus and who will follow after him jan if you and the worship team want to come up i'm going to close with this it gives us this picture of salvation in that just like Bartimaeus was blind, the Bible tells us, so is every man and woman apart from the truth and the acceptance of the gospel message also blind. Obviously not physically blind, but blinded spiritually by the lies of Satan who wants people to believe that there's no hope for them. And when we go about telling people of the things that God has done for us to these people, you know what they go? They say, if there's, been, if there's hope for you, if there's a way for you, there's a way for me. And that's what we tell them. If there's, if there's been hope for me, if there's a way for me, there's a hope for you, a way for you. And his name is Jesus. Paul writes to the, to the church of the Corinth about this, and he says that, that, the, that only the, the gospel of the glory of Jesus, only the gospel message can open a person's eyes to the truth that Jesus can save and will save them if they come to him when they hear him calling to them the good news message the gospel is the power of god unto salvation and nothing else not some fancy marketing package not 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 our own best efforts to put it in this way it's the simple truth that you're a sinner and you need a savior and jesus is him who was crucified buried and rose again three days later so that you may have life that's the message guys and there's power in that message. Don't discount it. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4.3 and he said, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, only to those who are going to reject it. He says, whose minds of the God of this age is blinded, who do not believe, lest the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. It is the light that shines into the darkness and sets people free. That gives us sight to our need and to our Savior. Now, Bartimaeus was blind, but he was also a poor beggar, we're told. And likewise, the Bible teaches us that those of us that were lost in our sins, those who are lost in our sins are also poverty-stricken apart from Christ. The Bible says that our righteousness, our good works are like filthy rags. We're, we're clothed in dirtiness and filth, figuratively speaking, because as a result of sin, we owed a debt, a debt we could not pay, a debt that we had... Yet this debt that we had, that we were, we, 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 we were told that we came to this understanding, this debt that we had, and understanding that we had no assets or resources to pay this debt on our own, that knowledge, it says that God uses that knowledge to draw us into a loving relationship with Jesus. We first must understand that we have a need. There's no grace apart from the truth. There's no grace apart from the need being revealed. And so Jesus... Dying on the cross with his own life, willingly paid the debt we owed, and by doing so, he's replaced our beggarly garments and he has closed us with robes of righteousness, it says. In holiness and in impurity, his righteousness. And lastly, another thing we see is a picture of comparison in regards to the salvation that is made available to us through Jesus is the fact that when Bartimaeus cried out to Jesus to have mercy on him, it says that we see that Jesus willingly showed him mercy, okay? And the point is, I'm going I'm to end with this, the point is Bartimaeus' healing was the direct result of the mercy and the compassion that Jesus had for him, nothing more. You see, we can have all the faith in the world, but yet if we didn't have a compassionate and loving and merciful Father, the faith would equate to nothing. Why does God heal? Why is God saved? Because he's chosen to do so, because he's loving, because he's kind, because he's merciful, by it, because he's gracious. Why did Bartimaeus get his sight? Because God, through his son Jesus, had compassion on him. And we need to take note of this because it reminds us, guys, that God's mercy is not given to us because, because, because we or any other person deserves it. It's not given because of what a person does. It's not given because of what a, who a person is. It's given because God is a merciful God and his gift of salvation comes to us and it's, it's the result of God's grace and a, God's, a result of God's mercy. And you know what that really does? That frees us up by faith to lay hold of it, to accept to accept it and everything that he has for us. And my prayer is that we would do this this morning again. Accept and receive everything that God has for us. Will you stand? Lord, I do pray that that would take place in our hearts and our minds, that the adversary of our old man and the temptations that the enemy throws at us and the discouragements of this life wouldn't stand in the way of us, saying, have mercy on us, and then receiving what you have. Father, you stood still for us, and you stand still anytime your sons and daughters cry out to you, and you go, what can I do for you? Thank you for your mercy and your compassion to give us, God, what we don't deserve. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.